Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, ironradio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and sports nutrition professor of about 15 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm an exercise physiologist, teach for Globe University, a bunch of other stuff, and I got to see Slayer and Megadeth back-to-back last weekend. So it was oh, pretty cool. I know. <laughs> How was that? You like it? That was amazing. Yeah. It was at a small club, The Myth, just around the road from my house here. There's probably like a couple thousand people there, and it was right up front. And the uh, opening bands are really good, Suicidal Tendencies, Testament, Children of Bodom. So, oh, really? Awesome. I, I actually recognize all of those. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. That's nice. The small club atmosphere can be cool, too, like that. Oh, yeah, and to see Suicidal Tendencies, to see them, you know, Mike Muir still running around on stage for – since they started like decades ago was uh was pretty amazing nice yep all right well we have tons of news uh everyone today strength and muscle sport news i I was hoping to get uh, a local bodybuilder on i don't know if that's gonna happen so we're going to take a look at some uh news we got some mail uh i think the news if there's a theme here it might make you feel good uh, that you follow sort of a meathead lifestyle. Uh, there's some interesting health stuff coming out, yeah, that you may be justified um, compared to the other people. And then Dr. Nelson has some uh, listener mail, and we'll try yeah. to tackle that too. So we have a ton of stuff here, and it's good to actually get this uh, into the already covered bin. So this first one is by Alice Park. Uh, this was dropped off in my mailbox at work. Uh, this looks like it's from a major magazine. I can't even tell. Maybe Time or I'm not even sure where this came from. Uh, but it's by Alice Park. It's called The Dark Side of the Way Americans Eat. And the reason I'm sharing this with you, I mean, just because I don't know the lay publication, it is a recent paper from the British Medical Journal. So it's a peer-reviewed source. But So get this. It says, The Standard American Diet, often referred to as SAD, I find that funny, mm-hmm. Uh isn't exactly a sterling example of healthy eating. And then she goes on to talk about a new study in the British Medical Journal, um, or BMJ Open, I think it is, suggests uh, it may be worse than we even thought. So there was a large uh, sample of 9,000 Americans, and I think they did some uh, food logs, uh, interviews, whatever that may require. But uh, sampled 9,000 Americans, they found that nearly 60% of our calories here in the States come from so-called ultra-processed foods. Huh. And then they list some of those, soft drinks, snacks, cakes, pizza, and frozen meals. Um, it says, of course, those foods tend to be higher in salt and fat, but they also have added flavors, colors, emulsifiers, hydrogenated oils, and other things so and i think that's what i'm coming around to after decades of looking at these sorts of things is it's the slow additive effect of these things right i mean to me inpatient clinical dietetics you're fairly limited in what you can do nutritionally for someone in in a typical you know three day length of stay or less in the hospital i mean you can try to educate them a little you can make sure they don't starve but But it's the slow additive effect of some of these things. And we're really starting to learn more about the emulsifiers. I've been fussing about that in recent months. Um, Anyway, it says uh, nearly 90% of the sugar in the U.S. diet isn't coming from fruit. Well, that's not a surprise to most of us. That's not a shock, sadly. No, it's not. It says it's also coming from ultra-processed foods. And then they really start pointing the finger at how sugar... Excessive sugar intake has been linked to diabetes and heart disease and other things. And I find that very interesting, too, because when I was in graduate school, we were told that sugar had no impact on diabetes. It didn't cause diabetes, but cause is a loaded word. Yeah. Right. 
but certainly worsen your tendencies, I would argue. If you're not moving around and you are got a dent in your couch, then mainlining sugar is just not going to be good for you. Good point. You're not going right. to be able to handle that. If Absolutely. If you're exercising two-a-days, then it's probably not as big a deal. Yep. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Uh, you know, sort of a glycogen economy sort of. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it says strongly suggest to lower your sugar intake, uh, which has in fact been linked to diabetes, heart disease, and extra body fatness, is to reduce excessively processed foods. Well, again, we know that I think, but um, we've said this before when we were fussing about emulsifiers. But if there's more than five or six ingredients in a food you should really raise an eyebrow as to why the hell are they doing that you know yeah um yeah it's their incentive to get you to eat more i mean they run a business so they want you to buy more food well which brings me to this point at the bottom of this little snippet that i have they just give the original sources on this it's being the journal of nutrition uh journal of the academy of nutrition and dietetics and then the american heart association but listen to this i actually think we could twist this in our little dr frankenstein way Uh, (laughs) this this little snippet is just part of their little nutrition page here but and again this was dropped off in my my mailbox maybe i can chase down the reference or someone can tell me which uh lay mag this came from but salt makes people overeat now i thought Hmm. about now i'm thinking oh Well, maybe we can use this to our advantage. We have a lot of listeners who are trying to eat more. So it says people took in more calories and ate 11% more pasta when it had lots of salt, regardless of the fat content. Salt may dull the fullness signals that the body is used, um, supposed to feel, uh, that, and it it says it's admittedly speculation by the authors, you know, as to the mechanism, but yeah, more salt, 11% more pasta, even sort of regardless of the fat calorie, the content. So I don't know. Like I said, we could almost twist that and say, well, if you're not hypertensive, honestly, salt isn't a huge issue with all hypertensive anyway. But, um, yeah, you encourage yourself to eat more by salting your, in this case, pasta. That kind of makes a little bit of sense if you look at what manufacturers tend to do. And there's some pretty good research on this. Uh, Stephen Guyette's got a really cool blog that goes into a lot of the stuff that, you know, they'll add more sugar, a lot of times they'll add more fat and they'll add more salt. You know, it seems to be kind of a combination of those three a lot of times, too. Right, yeah. I remember back, even as an undergrad, we were learning how there are some things, like people have different taste preferences. Mm-hmm. It, it might be fun to do a show on that, too, but like men and women even supposedly have certain taste preferences along certain lines. But, yeah, things like you know, intense sugar taste and fat and the mouthfeel of dietary fat is almost universally attractive to people and you know yeah you're going to be manipulated by that they want you to buy more yeah and i remember something you said a long time ago that i've used with clients too is trying to get them to enjoy more bitter items whether that's just you know black coffee without like crap tons of sugar to you know broccoli to dark chocolate you know to over time try to shift their taste preference so that they actually enjoy those things are not always just thinking that Anything just crammed with tons of sugar is the only thing they enjoy, too. Right. We had Sean Phillips on uh, mm-hmm. long ago, and yeah, and he and I were sort of laughing about just tasting the tea, like just the black yeah. tea. Just taste the tea. <laughs> Don't put anything in your tea. And it's almost becomes like an exploration, you know, like, oh, there's some interesting flavors here because it's not like 50% high fructose corn syrup. Yeah. I don't know. And I'll tell you what, too. I mean, there are some messages in that um, that little nutrition page that I was commenting on as well too because when I see high fructose corn syrup in my fried chicken or not fried chicken um um regular chicken like skinless boneless kinds of chicken I'll buy I got a big bag of it I think it was one of the it was Costco or Sam's Club it was uh, last year and my god there's high fructose corn syrup in my chicken breast Whoa. just don't do that there <clears throat> is no effing reason for that yeah oh no wonder we eat a thousand percent more fructose than we did when I was a kid and that's a real number, by the way. Yeah, it's just manufacturers find they can put it in everything because it has, you know, sometimes that good mouthfeel depending upon how it's processed. It's uber sweet. It's right. ridiculously yep. cheap. So it yep. tends to find its way in all sorts of stuff. Right, yep. Um. Okay, next up. This is from 538.com. I don't know where I'm getting all this stuff. <laughs> um, Catherine Hobson and this may make listeners uh, feel good. If you're already feeling good, though, oh, I don't eat a lot of processed foods, well, this will make you feel even better. 
And I'll, I wish Phil was on it because he and I have both paid high-risk insurance for having a high body mass index. Says, oh, yeah. BMI is a terrible measure of health. And then it says <laughs> the subtitle is, but we keep using it anyway by Catherine Hobson. So, again, 538.com says the BMI uh, was created in the 1800s by a Belgian mathematician. Honestly, I did not know that. I don't know. It was that long ago. <laughs> um, but it, it says it was adopted during the late 20th century. It's become the way that governments, drug manufacturers, physicians, and us would-be dieters tend to measure obesity. And I think it's fair it's fair that they need a quick and dirty way to do this, right? When you're looking at 9,000 Americans, like in that last um, yeah, bit of data. studies. Yeah, like NHANES, you know, the mm-hmm. what, Nutrition Health Examination Survey. They they go around in a truck and you know, they'll interview people and they need like waist to hip ratio. You know, they're just getting out the tape measure on your gut or they're figuring out your weight and height and doing this little BMI calculation. So... In their defense, they're not going to walk around and put people in DEXA units, you know, 9,000 of them. Uh, but the point being is, mm-hmm. uh, in effect, MC Powers, uh, a friend of the show, she was just uh, helping me do an obesity seminar. And uh, one of her points was BMI is not body composition. And right. a lot of us know that. But I think it's it's important to keep reminding people, and that's what this article is doing. But there is a little bit of news that goes with this. It says, taken alone... As an indicator of health, the BMI is misleading. A study by researchers at UCLA published this month in the International Journal of Obesity looked at 40,420 adults uh, in the most recent U.S. Here it is, National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey and assessed their health uh, with six different metrics, blood pressure, cholesterol, C-reactive protein, which some of you guys know is an inflammatory marker, um, among others. But here's the kicker. It found that 47% of the people classified as overweight by body mass index uh, were healthy, actually, as measured by at least five of these health metrics. Again, Mm. like some blood work and cholesterol, you know, uh, blood pressure. Um, Meanwhile, 31% of normal weight people were unhealthy by at least two of these Mm. health metrics. So... Uh, they're not just kind of railing against the idea that body mass index is just a weight for height. I mean, obviously, if you're heavily muscled, you can have a body mass index 28, 29, even 30. Uh, And again, it's because your weight is composed. What are you composed of? You're mostly muscle mass. You're heavily muscled. So you have heavy weight for height. And that's where Phil and I both have been slammed. It was like, because my body mass index would hover around 30. And Phil might have been 31. I don't know. He's taller than I am. I'd have to. We'd have to do the little calculation. But that's that's all those dummies look at, you know. And I feel like saying, "Bust out the skinfold calipers, chump," because <laughs> you know. Uh, in fact, my uh, State Farm, uh, to put a name on it, representative, he actually kind of snickered and he said, "I actually use you as an example with some of my other clients because I had to recommend that you stop working out in order to get better health rates." You know, uh. <laughs> and how ironic is that? You know, yeah. I was nervous when I had to get different health care um, this year that luckily they didn't have require me to do a physical because I'm like, oh, God, I'm going to be in the, the high risk category just from BMI. Which right. Is insane. Right. Yep. Now, you're you're tall. That may save you. Yeah, I was like kind of borderline. So I'm like, if I know it's coming up, I'll just drop a bunch of weight. <laughs> right. You know, there's. There's a lot more direct investigation in this paper, if anybody's interested, 538.com. Um, I'm not going to continue to read this, but again, if it doesn't always correlate with health markers, right, um, it certainly doesn't give you a direct measure of body composition. So, And that's the kind of thing that – I mean, I've even seen in the past dietitians would uh, talk about upper arm girth as a measure of obesity and i'm like wait what what now it's I true waist measurement but upper arm that's well, pushing it. E- even girth and if you think about it we've all seen sort of the you know who i'm talking about the kind of people mm-hmm. the super obese and the, the, their arms are i'm like dude guns on that one you know yeah. because they, <laughs> they don't lift but they've got really big so i suppose in the gen pop there's some correlation between even limb girth, you know, and body fatness. I mean, if you think about it, but again, yeah, especially like you were saying, compared to waist, you know, that just, that doesn't sound like a really good, um, target body part. But. Yeah. And the, the sad part is that BMI on a big, like the Anne Haynes data <clears throat> and the 
population info does kind of work per se for epi studies because most people are unhealthy and there's not a ton of people walking around with larger you know body mass due to muscle um but on a that's right still boggles my mind that they use it on an individual basis that's the part that just drives me nutty no exactly and you know and that's a fair point just like with with limb girth or body mass index right a tiny fraction of us are heavily muscled it does signify over fatness in most people in the gen pop right i mean you're heavy for your height because you're over fat and so it's just it's fun to kind of rail against that because we're we're being discriminated against frankly you know, uh, because yeah. of the lifestyle choice. I mean, you're going to gain muscle mass if you like to lift weights, and you shouldn't be penalized for that to the tune of like one to three hundred extra dollars every few months. Yeah, <clears throat> and I just calculated my BMI. I'm twenty nine point one. Oh. So overweight is twenty nine point nine. Obesity is a BMI or thirty now. So yep, we're yeah. obese, man. We are borderline obese. I don't know yeah. what to tell you. <laughs> Stop lifting. Yep. Put all those weights down. Okay, um, next up, we just have a lot. Let me get through one more, and then we'll pick back up with a few more, and we'll get to, uh, of course, the the mail. We haven't forgotten you listeners who sent us some stuff. Uh, This one's from NPR.org, National Public Radio. Two breakfasts may be better than none for school kids. So if you like your second breakfast, I know I do. This (laughs) might make you feel good. Now, this isn't kids, but. Uh, it says, when it comes to school breakfast, two is better than none, says a new report released Thursday in the journal Pediatric Obesity. Researchers tracked nearly 600 middle school kids uh, from 5th to 7th grade, looking to see if they had no breakfast, uh, if they ate breakfast at home, and then again at school, that sort of thing. And then they looked at their obesity rates. The result was that weight gain among students who ate, quote, unquote, double breakfast was no different than that seen amongst other students. Meanwhile, the risk of obesity doubled among the kids who skipped breakfast or were very mm. inconsistent. Now, this is interesting to me because uh, – and I think you'll agree with me on this, Mike. But a lot of the stuff about breakfast being the most important meal of the day uh, gets exaggerated. The, yeah. There's not the amount of data – like if someone says they skip breakfast, if they have a specific reason for that and that's working for them, I usually don't try to judge too much. you know, But – because you'll hear a lot of stuff too about grade point averages improving with breakfast, and but again, yeah. that data—it's like we've all jumped on this bandwagon, but it's not as voluminous as you would think. You know, there's yeah. just not a ton all pointing in the same direction. And in that case, with those kids, that may be the most nutritional thing they've eaten all day. So it may not just be the breakfast; it may be just the fact that hey, look, they got some food and micronutrition for once. That's right, especially, yeah, if, it, if there's at least some rules with the schools providing right. it. I mean, uh, it says, um, let's see, it seems a bigger problem to have kids skipping breakfast than to have these kids eating two breakfasts, says Marlene Schwartz of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity, who's also one of the study's authors. Now, if you're wondering about the mechanism, um, at least the speculation is that the kids who don't eat breakfast are more likely to overeat later in the day. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I was always a fan. If I, when I cut carbs out of my diet, I tend to cut them out in the evening. I tr- still try to have a little bit of some slow acting carbs throughout the morning. And, you know, everybody's different, but that works for me. It gives me some energy to run on during the day, you know, have my oats and berries, that kind of thing. Um, because if I don't eat breakfast, yeah. Um, I think most people are prone to overeating in the evening just because your satiety is lower, you don't feel as full. Something that would have made you feel full at breakfast or lunch is now not, you know. And I think human beings are reasonably good um, at controlling a regular food intake. Again, not when obesity is off the running off the reels, but uh, in a weight-stable human being. Even in obese people, it's only like about a couple percent per year that the you know calories in, calories out per se is off. Oh, yeah. Good point. Yep. Uh yeah, but so if we're fairly good at getting, let's say, a guy around 2,800 or 3,000 calories a day, a girl might be down around 2,200, 2,400, depending on your size and your activity. But weight-stable people are fairly good at getting, like, auto-regulating with the number of calories they eat. And so this would make sense to me what they're saying with these kids. You know, if you're going to eat – if these kids need 2,000 calories a day, uh, they're not getting it at breakfast, your body is going to get – you know, you're going to get hungry later. 
and yeah. they're going to eat it at, at dinner. And like you said, Mike, then that might be where those ultra-processed foods come in. They grab the burger, the pizza, j- junk, you know, vending machine foods, you know, whatever. So, Yeah, I find with clients, like if I look at their dietary recall and their goal is more body composition, you know, and they've you know, got the habit of exercise and that type of thing, I'm if I notice that they've skipped breakfast and they tend to eat a lot later in the day, the first thing I do is have them eat more protein in the morning and then some type of breakfast. Um, consequently, I've done almost the opposite where you've got someone who's, you know, pretty active, does a lot of exercise, is eating, you know, five, six times a day. I may have them skip breakfast, you know, once in a while or, you know, push out that period of time too. almost the polar opposite too. Yeah. Yep. And a good point about protein. I mean, there's plenty of data suggesting protein yeah. has to be part. Mm-hmm. Like when I say oats and berries, that's with a scoop of whey protein in there, you know, because it's, yeah, it's more satiating. And, you know, the way I figure if I'm going to raise my insulin levels and whatnot, my blood sugar, I might as well have some amino acids in my bloodstream, you know, um, yeah. going to work for me. So, uh, yeah, so two breakfasts may be better than none for school kids. Yeah. And then I'll tell you, let's, we can go to break. When we come back, I've got two more little tidbits. If you're going to stick around with us, everybody, one is about, and again, people just keep throwing this either on my desk or in my mailbox. They must just think I'm a nerd, <laughs> but um, one's about. They think you're a nerd? <laughs> <laughs> no, they must know. <laughs> oh, hypocrite. <clears throat> okay. But one's about uh, the Navy loosening their fitness standards. This mm. might uh, anger you a little. We'll see. And then there's another one that a student gave me about um, fucoxanthin. And, Mike, you may know about this. Hmm. But interesting. Yeah. Um, it, it's a supplement uh, yeah. that may affect body fatness and resting energy expenditure the and whatnot. seaweed so. one, wasn't it, if I remember right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a marine algae kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, let's go to break. And when we come back, uh, we'll jump into these two bits and some listener mail. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what, uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry and what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. 
Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, everyone, we're back. Uh, it's Lonnie and Mike, and we are finishing up a ton of news that's related to sort of our lifting culture, eating, etc. And then uh, we'll dive into some listener questions here in the second half of the show. This first one that I mentioned before break, Navy Loosens Body Fat Rules. It's by Julie Watson of the Associated Press. Uh, it says, thousands are allowed to stay after the standard is adjusted to be more realistic, quote unquote, hmm. more realistic. I, I don't know. I can see two ways to look at this. You know, I think I like certain standards, right, for my yeah. policemen, firemen, military. Um, at the same time, you can't be too elitist. But uh, it says the Navy is giving another chance to thousands of sailors who otherwise would be kicked out for repeatedly failing their physical fitness test because they exceeded body fat limits. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but uh, it says it's far more realistic uh, of the of a new body fat standard. Uh, we were kicking more people out of the Navy for failing uh, the body fatness test than for drugs. It oh, says geez. the number of sailors booted from the Navy annually because they did not meet physical fitness standards has more than doubled from 694 back in 2011 to over 1,500 last year. Hmm. Uh the Navy's old policy, and if you're wondering what this body fatness standard is, the Navy's old policy allowed for 22% body fat for males age 17 to 39 and 33% body fat for females in that 17 to 39-year category. I think that's reasonable. I mean, 22% is, I don't yeah. think that's asking too much. But um, it says the new limits fall in line with the Department of Defense standards and allow sailors to pass with a maximum of 26% for men and 36% fat for women. Hmm. Uh, and again, I don't know. We were just talking about the differences with the gen pop, you know, when it comes to body mass index and all that kind of thing. Maybe my I figure my standards are too high, but... I, and it, you know, seventeen to thirty-nine—that's sort of peak physical years. I, I don't see why you'd have to jump, bump it up from twenty-two percent fat to the to the new twenty-six percent fat. Yeah, and I wonder how they <clears throat> measure that because I've had a few people just emails I've had recently where they have some sort of calculation where they do like measurements and circumference and some other stuff too, and uh, and and part of me thinks that it's—I <clears throat> know a lot of the. People think military, a lot of people are actually doing desk jobs and supportive jobs and, you know, things that are important, but they're not as physically active, I think, as what most people would think, too. So, yeah, you know, there was a military guy on campus recently. Uh, if you think about it, like he was saying that childhood obesity, for example, is a threat to national security. Yes, it, it, that's a very interesting idea, isn't it? That there's good data on that too, actually. That we, you know, right? We're we're so out of shape and we're so over fat that the military won't have anybody to recruit when they come around to the high schools when you know you reach a certain age. That's frightening. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, know. and even the performance standards have changed over the years too. You know, I mean, it. Even when I was in the lab at the U. We had just a standard, you know, assessment test that, that they do. And one of them is a push-up test and the YMCA step test and all this kind of stuff. And it was amazing to me how many guys couldn't even do a handful of okay-looking push-ups. It looked like they were flopping around on the ground like a dead fish. Oh, man. So, yeah, not good. Not yeah, good. it was a little scary. <laughs> now, to be fair, uh, I'm not reading this entire Associated Press article, but I think they gave them – two or three chances to meet a certain standard. And if, if they wanted them to change their body fatness, I hope they put a couple of months between those tests because, yeah. you know, otherwise you're just going to fail, 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 boom, 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 uh, because your body comp's not going to change in just a matter of a few short weeks. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I've I, Pros and cons listeners, you, you know, write us. You know, you can go on ironradio.org. Uh, Rob is really good, even though he's not on uh, lately on the show he'll he'll send me everything that you send him through the ironradio.org webpage and let me know what you think about this i know we have some military 
listeners. Uh, and, you know, what do you think about these loose body fat standards? Because I think that's pretty loose. I mean, an average college male is supposed to be around 17, 18% fat, at least yeah. by some of the <clears throat> textbooks that I have. So 22% is, I don't know if you've ever looked at anybody. Now, you can have 22% fat and have a lot of muscle mass. Or you can have 22% fat and just be sort of flabby, if that makes any sense. Yeah. But um, strongman competitors and that kind of stuff, they may have the power belly and maybe a little bit more heavier on body fat, but they also have a lot of muscle, too. Right. You can see it through the thickness. Yeah. The shoulders, neck, traps. Yeah. Yeah. Those kinds of people, that's fine. Body fat alone. Um, It'd be interesting. We we obsess over body fatness. It'd almost be nice to have like a... Uh, lean mass index or a fat-free mass as the goal, you know, because let's face it, yeah, I, to me. I want to see a certain amount of functional tissue. Yeah. Anyway. We even have some sort of test, I think, that's just more performance-based. You know, here's our minimum standard of what you need to perform, right? And that performance may be based on a health standard. Um, and if you're 24% and you can meet all the guidelines there and perform as needed, eh, probably all right. You know, and depending on what those are, maybe there's a relative strength component, chin-ups or pull-ups or whatever. Yeah. Yep. Um, to me, that makes a little bit more sense because then you're kind of rewarding, you know, like you said, capacity and functional tissue instead of just trying to get to X number on the, the scale or however it's calculated. Absolutely. Yeah, that's where the rubber hits the road. You know, if, if yeah. there's a guy who's 26% fat and he can do 20 one-arm push-ups, hey, I'm okay yeah. with that. I'm okay with yeah. that, dude. Um, okay, like I said, it's just controversial. You know, there's two sides of that. One side you say, no, we have higher, better standards, stricter standards. And on the other side, you're like, yeah, but it's body fat. And is that a, a direct and valid measure of what we're actually wanting? You know, anyway. Uh, actually, I have two more little tidbits. This one a student gave me, uh, Mike and I were talking about this uh, over the break. The effect of xanthogen, this is a product, but it's sometimes, you know, products and uh, combined formulations sort of get work mm-hmm. their way into the literature but um the effects of xanthogen in the weight management of obese premenopausal women so this is for you women out there that listen to this show i know there's a growing number uh, with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease but with normal liver fat so non-alcoholic fatty liver is usually something you see in people that aren't as active their diet's not that great um Oftentimes, yeah, it's actually associated with some level of fatty liver. But anyway, um, they investigated the effects of a brown marine algae. Now, this is a 2010 paper by Abidov and colleagues, Diabetes, Obesity, Metabolism, 2010. Uh, But a student gave it to me this week, and I thought it was interesting. Um, Marine algae, fucoxanthin. And there was also some pomegranate seed oil in this. And they looked at their body, body weight, body fat, Liver lipids, blood chemistries, they did quite a bit in these women. Uh, I believe there were 41 of them. They did a 16-week double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled study. So that's that's nice, strict uh, protocol. Uh, they looked at their food records, body comp, resting energy expenditure, uh, you know, resting metabolic rate, uh, some blood samples for various things, uh, results. Uh, this product that had 600 milligrams of the of the pomegranate seed oil and 2.4 milligrams of the seaweed extract um, of the fucoxanthin, 2.4 milligrams, yeah, resulted in statistically significant reduction in body weight, in waist circumference, blood triglycerides, uh, circulating mm. blood fats, right, and C-reactive protein, which we've already talked about is an inflammatory marker. They also had significantly increased resting energy expenditure. So I don't know. Interesting to me that this. I think really the, most of the focus is on this 2.4 milligrams of fucoxanthin. Uh, there's no mention of monitoring their physical activity or their exercise, and of course that's going to be really important. Sometimes in nutrition studies, you'll actually see that. You know, they'll look at weight changes over time, and they'll just tell people to maintain their normal lifestyle. But boy. Anytime you're looking at body comp like this, I'd love to see some tight controls. Maybe they did. I don't have the full paper in front of me. but Yeah, and I'd like to see how much the <clears throat> resting energy expenditure went up, too. I'd be curious just to see what it – because it may be statistically significant depending upon the numbers and all that kind of stuff. But, eh, may not translate to much of anything in the real world, too. 
Right. They just say significantly increased <clears throat> resting energy expenditure. You're right. It'd be really nice to see how much. Yeah. Yeah. And did they do any direct vessel function or anything like that? Like, uh, like endos- no, it was pretty general. dysfunction or anything. Yeah, blood triglycerides, C-reactive protein, waist circumference, uh, liver fat content. They did some liver enzymes. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, that kind of stuff. But yeah, because uh, there's some pretty good data showing pomegranate juice or even just different types of things in that family may actually help um, measures of FMD <clears throat> or flow mediated dilation. Mm-hmm. So how well the vessel can actually um, dilate. So there's some interesting data on that too. Is that like a polyphenol link or something? <clears throat> something phenolic or? I think so. Um, here's one study from let's see, acute and long-term effects of grape and pomegranate juice consumptions on endothelial dysfunction and pediatric metabolic syndrome. Obviously, okay. these people have some issues going on. Um, I don't have the full study here in front of me. I could I could find it, but looks like it did improve vessel function. Not sure exactly what else they measured to determine that. So I think it's probably related to the polyphenols function. Maybe mm-hmm. some maybe direct nitric oxide effects or not. I'm not sure. Pomegranate was used for a while in some of the bodybuilding pre-workout products too, but that seems to have kind of faded away. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, I, I know it became a, a popular like beverage and stuff like a health food store. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so maybe I'm I'm oversimplifying by saying it's mostly the fucoxanthin. I don't know. I, both Hard of these say. things look like they have antioxidant qualities to me. I mean, uh, I'm familiar with astaxanthin, and again, Mike and I were talking about this over yeah. the break, but, you know, the, the orange-red pigment that you'll see in salmon, uh, and, you know, there's some interesting qualities that kind of stuff has, so... I don't know. It's one of those. I'm all about alternate approaches. When you see something about resting energy expenditure, like you saw a lot of this with the green tea, you know, the EGCG and all that, things that weren't pure, like harsh stimulants in nature. Because so much of the body fat control supplements are they're they're pretty straight up stimulants in nature. Uh, Yeah, that's why I've looked a lot at estesanthin for the past man probably like five years now and. The early animal data was like super impressive. Um, the human data is eh, kind of across the map and kind of disappointing as of late, but there's just not that much of it. Um, one of the best ones is from uh, Van Loon's lab. So oh, right, astaxanthin yeah. supplementation does not augment fatty acid use or improve endurance performance. This was actually in MedSci 2013. So they didn't see any change in it at all. What's interesting in that study is they didn't see any change in really antioxidant capacity or much of any change, which to me seems a, a little bit weird, but obviously, you know, very good lab, very good publication. The study was done well. So there's uh, one other study, I think the author was Church, if I remember right, showed that they did increase uh, cycling time trial performance, uh, but they didn't look at any of the mechanisms. So. The rat data says it may increase the CPT1 enzyme. So you're actually taking more fat and jamming it into the mitochondria to use as fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, but the human studies have been eh, not negative, but not uber positive either. Yeah. Yeah. Fucoxanthin is a carotenoid. Uh, yeah. It, those, yeah, similar the, family. Yeah. It's an interesting class of, uh, of supplements. And, you know, a lot of times with. With some of these things, I start to question the bioavailability. Like, they'll do amazing things, um, but they'll have to add bioperin or they'll have to do different. And I'm not saying that's the case with fecoxanthin or whatever, but um, it's one of the things you got to look at. Like, when you get, like you were saying, disappointing results in people, sometimes yeah. I wonder, can we, how well can we absorb that? And usually, there are a lot of studies. They'll, they'll do some blood work and make sure you're getting it absorbed. But Yeah, I don't know on fecoxanthin. I know astaxanthin is pretty well absorbed. There's... Is it? Okay. Really good data looking at oxidative capacity. Um, some interesting data looking at actually eye function because if you think about the muscles around the eye, they're super highly oxidative because they're being used all the time because we're looking around, moving around all the time. So reducing eye fatigue and things of that nature. Okay. But, hmm. um, so, yeah. Yeah, interesting stuff. And uh, the, a really bright guy uh, gave me that. He's a sort of a you know like-minded fellow nerd, so... Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to at least uh, mention it, and I'll look yeah, into it some more too. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I have one last quick bit that just might enrage some some listeners before we get to the listener mail. Uh, this is something that I stumbled across 
for class because Lance Armstrong came up and doping came up. And uh, this is from actually businessinsider.com. So it's a business publication, but it says crazy statistics shows just how common doping was in cycling when Lance Armstrong was winning the Tour de France. So if you're not familiar, a lot of people, he was essentially his defense was everybody was using EPO, erythropoietin, right, to get their red blood cell mass higher and hematocrit and oxygen transferability and all that. Um, and here's the number. Now, this is just a this is not a scientific investigation. It's just a investigative journalist doing this. But it says, importantly for Lance Armstrong, during the seven-year window when he won every Tour de France between 1999 and 2005, 87% of oh. the top 10 finishers, or 61 out of 70, were either confirmed dopers or suspected of it. Wow. So in other words, he's right. You know, I mean... he. he I, I don't know. It, it's just very interesting. First of all, he was never actually popped, I don't think, I mean, chemically, until there was some... Uh, it was much later. Yeah, statements. It was more of a, a social, verbal thing that came out where people were like, yeah, we watched him do this sort of thing, you know. And um, But yeah, I don't know. I, I, I love stuff like this because it really illustrates to the lay population how common this is. You know, we pick out these these people to just you know, be the, the witch in the witch hunt. And it's, it's completely unfair. It's completely yeah, unfair. And cycling for, I mean, years has been known as the, probably the most heavily dope sport on the planet. Um, so yeah. I don't think that's that shocking to anyone else. And if you go back up and you look at the records of, Oh, who was the actual winner, right? So if Lance Armstrong was, his titles were technically taken away, as far as I know, I don't know who would he go down to like eleventh place. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> you're right. You're right. How far down the list do you have to go to yeah. find somebody clean? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and, then, and their performance would be sucky. You know. Yeah, and then how you know, especially if it's years later, how do you know if that person's clean? If let's say you're out of the top ten, I'm I'm just making this up. I don't have the data in front of me. How do you know that person was? If you don't have any testing on them. You, you don't know. You can't go back and test them now. Old data, years yeah. Ago. So or no data because it was old. Mess. Yeah. All right. Well, we are um, advancing on time pretty well, but let's try to get to some of these questions. I know we've got some good ones. Yeah. So we've got one here. It's a solo gentleman. I am a new lifter, only lifting for nine months now. Thirty-two years old and have been a runner my whole life. Who decided he was tired of being skinny. Your guys' advice has been invaluable to me and has helped keep me motivated and in the gym. My question is a very amateur question. I hope it doesn't sink to rookie level for you guys to answer. I always read about one rep max and how entire workouts are based off of that. My question is how do you work up to a one rep max? Meaning do you do a couple light sets and then go for a max or slowly work your way up? Uh, it seems to me that every set would potentially take away from the max weight that you're using mm -hmm. or you could do. Obviously, I have no coach other than Arnold's Encyclopedia and Mark Ripito's Starting Strength, and then you guys. So I would appreciate to hear your advice. Mark Stanley. Well, I can tell you, and of course you know this, Mike, but yeah. uh, the NSEA has standard guidelines. So when we do this in in research uh, protocols, we we follow these. And in a nutshell, what it's going to amount to, and you can correct me, Mike, if you're used to something a little different, but generally it's something like 10 repetitions just with the bar or extremely lightweight. And then five repetitions with maybe a rough half of your maximum. Uh, some people like to do a series of push-ups or explosive push-ups as part of the warm-up or that sort of thing. But you're right in thinking that you don't want fatigue to play into your, you know, being detrimental on your one rep max. So sometimes they'll go for like 10 with the bar, five with like a 50% load, and then they might do two reps somewhere a, a little bit higher than that. Um, but you're right. You almost need someone eyeballing this a little bit because you don't want to be inching up like a half a pound at a time. And then 20 sets later, you think, okay, that's my one rep max, you know? So I, I always like that sort of 10 reps, five reps, then maybe a two, you know, and you're giving yourself a good uh, recovery period in between there, something like three to five minutes if you have to. Uh, you don't have to do it all right back to back, but that's very rough. I don't know, Mike, if you have anything else to add to that, but. Yeah, no, I generally agree with that. And 
what I have clients do, especially if they're an online client, is I may have them test their Macs, you know, a couple times if they're just not used to the protocol. So usually I have them test every, you know, four to six weeks. So if I'm working with them for a couple months, they'll run into that. Um, like this person, if they're really new, I would say just, you know, take two times during the week. Let's say you're going to test your deadlift. I agree with the protocol you had. And then just write everything down in your notebook. So write down exactly what you did for your warm-ups. And then yeah, rest, you know, three, four days. And then do it again. Yeah, so you're not really yeah. trying to find the absolute max per se and super compensation, all this crazy stuff. You're actually just trying to get better at how much warm-up do you specifically need as a person. Right? Because you'll find that some people need, you know, like a much longer warm-up to get to their one rep max or an RP of a, a 9 out of a 10, so close to their max. Um, other people just don't need that much of a warm-up, and they're pretty good. So it kind of allows you to figure out where that happy medium is. So you don't do so much work that you're fatigued by the time you get there, but you do a sufficient amount that it's a, a good marker of your performance. Yeah, I like it. Uh there's really good test retest reliability with like a bench press, for example. Uh, I, I'm not sure if it's as tight with the deadlift or not, but generally these are pretty good reliable tests. But it, yeah, it's nice to be able, if you really want to know, like you don't just have a, a rare, awesome, you know, test day or yeah. a really sucky test day. Yeah, get your baseline, do it across a couple of days over a week or two. You know, it's probably a good idea. Yeah. And one other thing people can do, which is a little bit more advanced, is they can, I'll have them work up to sort of a, a pseudo max. So, like if you're using the RPE scale, so radian perceived exertion, you're looking at around a nine, maybe on a one to 10 scale. So it's there, but it's not your absolute max. And I'll have them just practice warming up to an RPE of a nine and see where they get, and then do their back off work from there. So they get a little bit of practice of determining how many warm ups they need. And then they get more practice by doing that, you know, a couple times a week even. But they're not doing a ton of volume there, so they're not really pounding that super high uh, weight all the time either. So it gives you kind of a nice, happy medium. Right on. <clears throat> well, I hope that helps. Yeah, yeah. And um, thanks for, for listening, Mark. Really appreciate it. Uh, next one here is from Danny. She says, I've listened to episodes of Hormones and Practical Tips. I was wondering if you or Dr. Nelson could give me some insights on training someone who has had their thyroid removed. My client had a full thyroidectomy. That's where they actually pull your whole thyroid out. And in turn, is kept in the hyper range to avoid cancer coming back. Says these levels are, in fact, in the hyper range, so it sounds like they've verified them. Is there a specific approach I could be taking for fat loss or hypertrophy? Current training includes three days of strength, mostly volume with occasional heavy day, and mostly total body, two days of hit, 20 minutes, three days of walking at a moderate pace for 40 minutes. Strength training includes deadlifts, squats, hip thrusts, pull-ups, chin-ups, and accessory work. She is already small and considerably strong, but carries excess weight like most women around her thighs and waist. She's 38 years old, female, 110 pounds at five foot one. She seems to have a very hard time putting on any muscle and or losing fat. I was wondering if this was related to the thyroid. She's just trying to lean out a bit uh, to show and has little definition for it. Uh, I have to have her start to experience with carb cycling, but really haven't seen much difference. Anyway, just curious if you have any experience with this or helping me figure it out, what works for her. Thank you. That's a complex question. Yeah, <laughs> uh, because thyroid, it, it, it's not just a driver of metabolic rate, but it's uh, it has a permissive effect on other hormones, you know, in different ways. Um, now, you said her client had a complete thyroidectomy, right? Had their thyroid removed. Yeah, all taken out. Uh, you know, I actually dug around for you a little bit. Uh, was it Danny was her name, right? Correct. Uh, I dug around just a little. I found a couple of uh, mouse models where they removed the thyroid. I didn't have a lot of time to dig around. I'm sure there are some exercise guidelines. If you were to look through some national, like Google, like a, some kind of national thyroid cancer group or some of their forums, you know, you can get reports from people that are like your client. Uh, I, but uh, here's a few things. 
this first one was a, a 90, 1996 paper by Zarkechny or Zarsesny, Influence of Thyroid Hormones on Exercise Tolerance and Lactate Threshold in Rats. So they took 14 rats and they removed their thyroid. They were uh, thyroidectomized. And then uh, essentially here, they looked at both sedentary and endurance trained animals, uh, again, with the thyroidectomy. Um, let me cut to the bottom here. There's a lot of details in here, but it says it's concluded that both the T3 deficiency and the thyroid excess uh, reduced maximal exercise performance and shifted the lactate production at max um, to lower workloads. In other words, they tended to dump lactate more. Uh, I suppose one way to look at that would be that they're, it makes them look like they shift toward rapid you know, carb metabolism, a reliance on carbohydrate yeah. use. Um, it says endurance. Which makes sense if they're high, right? Yeah, right. <clears throat> endurance training or administration of T3 to the hypothyroid rats markedly improved their exercise performance uh, and in elevated their lactate production. Uh, it says, however, T3 treatment markedly increased maximal and su submaximal lactate levels. Endurance training. Uh, seems to improve their performance. It's not like they can't improve. Yeah, it's, it's going to shift them to more of a fast carbohydrate type of metabolism. And that might not be something that very exciting to someone who's trying to burn some fat. Um, this next one is sensitivity of the soleus muscle to insulin and resting and exercising rats with experimental low or high thyroid. Uh, so, it, again, uh, they talk about surgical thyroidectomy. It says, a single bout of exercise for 30 minutes can potentiate the effect of insulin on storing carbohydrates in muscle, for example. Uh, it, it says, the data here suggests that thyroid hormones exert an interactive effect with the insulin in skeletal muscle, inhibiting the effect of insulin on glycogen synthesis. Uh, and, hmm. again, that makes sense. For, you know, like we were saying with the other paper too. First, I think because you're talking about something that's a stimulant in nature, it's not the usual adrenaline type stimulant we're used to, but thyroid is a, you know, a, a rev up the metabolism, kind of use the fuels kind of thing. And that's why on that last paper, we saw a shift toward fast carbohydrate use. And in this one, we're looking at less, uh, less ability for insulin to store glycogen Again, because thyroid's not exactly a storage hormone, it would sort of counter-regulate with, with insulin a little bit there. It's hard to in, interpret a lot of this stuff, right? I think I would the take-home message for me was whether you're hypothyroid, you're too low, or hyperthyroid or too high, it's going to have effects on your metabolism and your ability to exercise or get certain training results because there's always that sweet spot, that euthyroid kind of middle ground that's desirable, um, I don't know. Uh, I, do you have any thoughts on this, Mike? Yeah, it's pretty hard. I mean, the, the first one is obviously she's going to need to work with her doctor pretty closely and, you know, have a set schedule of having it monitored and things of that nature. Cause it's, you know, people who I know who are on, uh, thyroid medications for various things. It's, it's never really one static thing. It's usually changing a little bit here, changing a little bit there, and especially if you've had your entire thyroid removed. That becomes even more touchy from that stance. Mm -hmm. Dramatic, um, yeah. Usually in women, too, it's a good idea to make sure they have an iron test. So make sure they're not becoming anemic or they've got other things going on also. Um, in terms of what she could do with the client, um, my guess is that because she says here that she's having a hard time adding any muscle or leaning out, I would probably, if the client's okay with it, take a period of time and slowly increase her carbohydrates and calories, making sure her performance and all of her lifts is good, probably add a little bit more lean tissue that way, and then I would probably slowly come back down from there again. It just sounds like she's very stuck where she's at right now. So usually when someone gets super stuck, the first thing I want to see is can we move them either one direction or the other? And we don't know where you know she's at for calories or what she's done in the past, but if she's hyperthyroid all the time she may have better luck slowly going up in calories adding some muscle and then coming back down would right. be my guess or even healthy fats mm. i would yep. i would think because yeah if uh if that mouse paper is any indication she's not going to store Correct. glycogen and recover as well yeah maybe the avocados the olive oil you're right though i mean hyperthyroid all the time 
generally that's related to weight loss. Um, yeah. but that could be muscle and fat loss. It's, it's really hard to interpret some of this stuff, you know, but, uh, yeah, yeah, and you're right. The physician relying on the physician is huge. He may not know how to help her look ripped, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> um, but you would think that the more she could read up on this and get feedback from, again, some of those like national forums from legitimate, like, uh, medical, like hypothyroidism groups or hyperthyroidism groups, she might be able to get some tidbits because honestly, being able to manipulate thyroid a little, I don't know. I would think that could almost be beneficial so long as you're, you're listening to your doctor. So. Yeah, and the information I've seen on the interwebs for the, the thyroid is, oh, man, it's so across the board, and there's some that's good, but, man, there's a lot of stuff that's pretty horrible. Well, you know what I'm saying, though? <laughs> that's why you got to go to one of these, like, um, moderated, like, national thyroid yeah, organizations. Sure legitimate info, not just Bob's forum. <laughs> no, right, exactly, YouTube or some other um, yeah. crap, because, yeah, it's a complex issue. We have one more, right? One more, yep. This is from Josh Hill. So, say, Lonnie, I was listening to the last episode. I wanted to change gears. You mentioned that when coming off a cut and trying to hold weight, you should slowly increase calories and rebuild your metabolism. I was wondering specifically, how do you increase caloric intake without gaining weight? Uh, how do you raise your metabolism back up? Uh, feel free to address this on air. I also thought you guys may enjoy this advertisement in the UK. Something for a pot noodle. <laughs> I haven't checked that out yet, but no, we'll, we'll, have we'll to check look that out. Let's get to his question, though. Yeah, so what? obviously yeah. you're, you're going to have some thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, my general thoughts are, and then we'll give you your thoughts, is he says here, it says, can you specifically increase caloric intake without gaining weight? And you're probably going to gain some weight. I mean, that's just kind of the reality of how it works. The classic study on this was done by Levine at Mayo several years ago. Enrolled a bunch of subjects, and starting on Monday, he put them on a thousand calories extra. And what they thought is, oh my gosh, everyone in the study is going to gain this massive amount of weight. Study ends, and what they saw is that some people did gain a fair amount of weight, but some people only gained a couple pounds. And they overfed these people by a thousand calories per day for I think it was eight weeks. And the conclusion was that. Some people will start ramping up their NEAT, so non-exercising activity thermogenesis. They subconsciously walk around more, they twitch more, they just ramps up their sympathetic nervous system, and they start burning more of the calories off. Fidgety, yeah. Fidgety, yep. Um, other people did not, so they just um, gained more weight. So in practice, what I see is that there's some people who are there severely underfed and were exercising a lot. They may actually start to lose a little bit of weight initially, probably because their performance is better, so they're actually doing uh, more work in the gym. They probably twitch and move around more. Um, but overall, some people are going to gain some weight. So it's this trade-off between if I take your, you know, say, caloric intake from 1,500 calories to so something super low to, let's say, 3,000. Like So Lane Norton would say it's kind of like a reverse dieting approach. And let's say you gain three pounds, right? And let's say it's all fat, right? Just a worst case scenario. I would say that's a pretty good trade-off in my book, you know, to increase your metabolism by 1,500 calories for three pounds, pretty good. Um, you know, if you're not so good and you don't do it as well and you're too aggressive and you gain 12 pounds, eh, <laughs> probably not so good then. Um, so in practice, I like to have people go slower, watch their body composition, watch their performance in the gym, the performance and all their lifts should start going up. And you're just trying to find that sort of uh, happy medium where you're slowly increasing it over time, uh, but your body composition is not getting significantically worse. How long was that study, Mike? You're talking about the Levine study? I think study? the Levine study was eight weeks, if I remember right. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> it's an interesting point, right? It's It's probably worth gaining a couple of pounds of fat if you can reset your basal metabolism to be much faster. Yeah. Uh, the the caveat with that of that would be that if you're in one of those maintenance phases, your body is you're not at baseline. You know, your like LPL activity is much ramped up. Your your uh your fatty tissue is eager to store fat and and that sort of thing. So, uh, I would argue in the the IIFYM guys aren't going to like this, but I think <laughs> your choice of macros are going to be important in this. 
uh, and not and l- literally not just the macros. First of all, from a macro perspective, I think there should be a fair amount of protein involved during a refeed. But also, I mean, there's been some interesting studies on the different kinds of dietary fats. And I mean, there was one paper I found that I found really odd, actually, that safflower oil uh, in a refeed, a post-diet refeed, was less likely to cause body fat retention than some other kinds of oils. And I'm really? usually not a fan of safflower because it's one oh, of I those like corn that. oil, safflower. It's one of the ones we overeat already. Yeah. Um, but I think the key would be not to get that in chips, you know, uh, <laughs> but maybe in some, you know, the, the freshest, less processed form you could get. But I don't know. Um, there are some fats that are considered healthy, but they may not be the best choice for a refeed, like olive oil. I'm not sure that's the single best choice for a refeed. It's got lots of health benefits associated with it. But um, So keep your fish oil intake high, the omega-3, you know, at least consider this. Uh, protein intake high. The carbohydrates in a refeed, I would avoid sugar like the plague. Uh, when you do that, you know, excess calorie, you, you start bumping up the calories, slower acting carbs. I'm a big fan. I've seen some guys, in fact, some of them have been on the show before. I got them ready for strongman competitions and they, they were overeating and they were doing it with stuff like, you know, yams or oatmeal, sort of those traditional types of carbs. And it really seemed to work. I mean, it's hard to do that. It can be really hard to do that, you know, to eat extra calories like that. But, um, I'm a big fan of keeping it quote unquote clean. I know that's a loaded word, but you know what I mean? Using traditional (laughs) bodybuilding style foods uh, to reintroduce those calories instead of uh, the temptation would be to have maybe a little too much fun and do it with, uh, you know, Wendy's triples or something, Baconators, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And I agree with that because he's trying to hold weight here and slowly increase calories that the biggest mistake I see people do, and I, I agree with you, Lani, is that they're just way too aggressive to start. You know, they may not even change their caloric intake for a couple of weeks at all. You know, and then they think, oh my gosh, I can add a thousand calories. And it's, no, you can't. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you're you're not in that. a normal state. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope that helps. When in doubt, go slower. Yep, slow. Keep it, you know, traditional. Um, less processed foods in the refeed and i've got to think you're you're going to be in a better state with that okay i would agree hey we had a long show there was a lot of stuff yeah, to discuss so good stuff well thank you sir you know i always like just having the discussions with you and some of the other guys a too. Nerd should... out session yeah exactly <laughs> it's a chance for for all of us to discuss some things as well hey everyone uh since mike and i are the only ones on today uh coming up pretty shortly we're we're going to do a, a on-site recording from San Diego uh, at the Experimental Biology Conference. We, Mike and I have done this from Japan. We've done this from all over the place. Yeah. Um, Mike, you and I think we had some from uh, Dr. Cotter was from Experimental Biology yeah. last Dr. time. Dr. Cotter and I were there last year in Boston. Yeah. And this is a fun meeting. It's a big meeting, and we are going to learn some cool stuff for you. So. Yeah, it's ultra eggheads. <laughs> Absolutely. And I love to look at this kind of stuff. We're going to present some of our coffee data there. And we'll be able to share that with you as we're seeing it. I just think it's one of the best things about Iron Radio or podcasts in general is we can report on site, like with breaking news, that this stuff's not going to trickle into magazines for months to a year, uh, you know, or even or certainly textbooks and that kind of thing. And, And you can learn it as fast as we learn it without paying the registration fee. So... It, yeah, it should and, be fun. And some of the oral presentations, like some of the stuff we saw in Spain several years ago in Japan, and, you know, one of them we saw, they had just finished literally the data collection. And since it was an oral presentation, he put in the new data. And, you know, that kind of stuff doesn't show up even in a peer-reviewed publication potentially for a year or longer. Absolutely. You know, by the time it gets through and peer-reviewed and out in a journal and all that kind of stuff. Right. Breaking data. Yeah, we know it as soon as almost straight out of the researcher's lab like you're having a conversation yeah. with the guy. Yeah, it's awesome. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Cool. Thanks, guys. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on 
your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org. And um, let us know what you think on the forums. And certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.